Hello, welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, a weekly program where Masons from around the world get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely the opinions of the participants and do not represent any Grand Lodge statements or positions. Make sure you keep your conversations open for the public and on the level to interact with us. We love seeing you live every Thursday night over on Facebook or YouTube land. The chats are always fun. And remember, your chats may show up in the show. And if you can't catch us live, love seeing you in the replay or on your favorite podcasting app. Well, we won't see you, but Joe's not here to correct me anyway. So, you know me. My name is John Rewark. I'm a past master of the Patriot Lodge number 1957 in Fairfax, Virginia. And next up for his introduction, Robert Johnson. How's it going, Robert? It's going very well. Well, thanks for coming out, everybody. This would be uh, an awesome set to... Uh, three awesome episodes so i'm excited to be a part of it as always uh, past master waukegan and uh sitting secretary there worshipful master over at space novum 1183 three for the price of one got That's it right. what a deal and third host for the price of one jason richards how's it going jason good how are <laughs> you stupid apple <laughs> animations. Uh, my name is Jason Richards, and I'm a past master of Vacation Lodge number 16 in Clifton, Virginia, and uh, glad to be here. Sweet. Awesome. Well, Joe is out masoning, so he'll get to us when he gets to it, because uh, you know, these things happen. You know, he said he was going to be out. Soon as he became a past master, but they they pulled him back in. Yeah, uh, by his metal fillings. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. Want to give a special shout out to the patrons who support the show. You guys are awesome. Thank you for supporting ten years of the Masonic Roundtable. Here's to ten more. Head over to Patreon.com/slash The Masonic Roundtable. Ah, it worked. Awesome. Okay, let's go over now to our favorite section of the show, which is called the Tarot Card of the Week. Right, Jason? Yeah, but you know what? I didn't. Uh, I didn't get the music together. It's a live show. Tarot Card of the Week. Uh, never gets old. <laughs> Jinx. Get, out, get out of my head. All right. So um, tonight, since we're covering the Tria Prima and uh, alchemy, we are going with the Splendor Solace. Oh, pretty. Tarot. And actually, I can... Uh, is that gold foil? It is gold foil. <sighs> yes. Nice. It's like gold, gold foil embossed. Um, really, really cool. So the Splendor Sola or the uh, Splendor Solace is, you know, a, an alchemical, you know, an embolished or embolished, excuse me, an illuminated alchemical text. Uh, it's attributed to Salomon Trismosin, who is allegedly the teacher of Paracelsus. And we'll be talking uh -huh. about Paracelsus a lot in this episode. And so it's dated, um, <clears throat> the oldest version is dated from about uh, 
1532 to 1535, that's right around the time when uh, Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy were published. Um, and the version that this tarot is based off of uh, dates to around 1582. And so the work itself, you know, it, it consists of like a sequence of 22 elaborate alchemical images um, set in ornamental borders. And it shows and details a symbolic process associated with the classical alchemical death and rebirth of the king and incorporates a series of seven flasks, each associated with um, one of the then-known planets, and we'll get to planets and celestial bodies as part of alchemy as well. Um, and within the flasks, you know, a process is shown involving the transformation of bird and animal symbols into the king and queen, uh, and the white and red tincture, white and red tincture being the philosopher's stone. Um, so what we, uh, what we have done, uh, here is we've, we're not doing the random draw today. I know you all are super, super disappointed that um, they know of, I know, uh, <laughs> but this is uh, too good to be true. I know. I know. But uh, what we have done is based on some of the research from our good friend, uh, Brother Jamie Paul Lamb, we have pulled together the three tarot cards emblematical of salt, mercury, and sulfur. And they are traditionally the high priestess, the emperor, and the lovers. Or in the case of the Splendor Solus, deck, the Fountain Knight, the Mountain, and the Golden King. And so I'll read, I'll read a little excerpt from each, and then we can go into their, their more traditional um, meanings. I am the Fountain Knight, inner alchemy of the High Priestess, the Priestess of the Silver Star. I deepen your reflections into a conscious-making art, the alchemical essence of glory, through me, repetition is transformed to revelation, bringing new powers of awareness. I am artisan of the uniting intelligence, glorious truth known only through individual spiritual experience. So the mountain is, I am the mountain, inner alchemy of the emperor, son of the morning, chief among the mighty. I come that you may learn the right use of ambition and challenge, focusing the beam of concentration to set things in order. Cleanse the doors of perception. Look out through the windows of your soul. I am the artist, artisan of the constituting intelligence, the substance of creation in the darkness of the world. And then finally, we get to the golden king or the lovers. I'm the golden king. Inner alchemy of the lovers, children of the voice, oracle of the mighty gods. I come that you may learn to unite and transcend difficulties in pursuit of divine love, bringing inspiration and impulse together into loving actions. I am the artisan of the disposing intelligence, clothing forms with radiance of Holy Spirit through discernment and right relationships. 
So there's a, if you want the longer version of why these three cards in particular were picked, and it's a whole uh, Gematria breakdown and how it applies to the Felicraft 357 and so on and so forth, definitely check out um, Approaching the Middle Chamber by Jamie Paul Lamb. Really good read. If you're, if you're a Felicraft, you absolutely should have it in your library if you like this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Uh, that's that's heady. That's already a lot. We could talk a whole show just on those those three cards and those descriptions that she walked through. So chew on that. But we won't. <laughs> but we won't. We'll talk about three other things. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so <throat> before we dive into the Tria Prima, uh, as it has come to, to manifest based on the co- concept of medieval alchemy we really should do a little bit of a a primer on what this whole alchemy thing is where did it come from um does anyone have any books that could 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 help with defining that oh i see jason you've got maybe (laughs) maybe you've been studying this right yeah yeah and so uh yeah i've got a series of of new presentations um on occult philosophy and the Masonic experience coming out later this year. Spoilers. Um, And so I've been doing a lot of heavy research uh, and it is heavy into Agrippa and his kind of seminal work, the the three books of, of occult philosophy. And um, when we, when we talk about the Tria Prima, what we have to understand is you know, Paracelsus, who was, you know, a, a physician by trade, saw, you know, the Tria Prima as a refinement to the modern day medieval system of alchemy. And it was you know, very much the system that Agrippa compiled through his three books of, of occult philosophy. And so in order to understand how Paracelsus was thinking about the Tria Prima as a refinement and kind of a blend of alchemy, you know, theurgy and magic with medicine. Um, we need to step back and do a little bit of a, a primer on how the, you know, kind of scientific and esoteric world of the 1500s was looking at the alchemical process and, uh, and what they were actually trying to do. Everybody, everybody thinks of alchemy as, you know, the, the medieval magicians trying to turn lead into gold. And and we'll talk about that, but you know, the question remains like, well, why, why did they think they could do that in the first place? And what was the scientific method um, that, and the thinking that underpinned, you know, ultimately their quest for um, everything, whether it be the philosopher's stone or turning lead into gold, etc. And so when it comes down to it, Agrippa and his um, contemporaries were very concerned with the idea of occult virtues. And so occult virtues are properties or characteristics that are created by God in the theological world passed down to the, you know, seven planets that were known at the time in the celestial world where they were, you know, 
sealed and perfected and then passed down to the natural world where those properties ruled by, you know, each of the various celestial objects and created by God um, manifest into, you know, essentially rocks, minerals, plants, and animals, kind of the, the four. Um, and therefore everything had those properties. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, so the virtues were often aligned to the four elements, air, fire, the four classical elements, the mm -hmm. four classical elements. Yes. So, you know, earth, water, air, and, and fire. And, and those, right. You're going to, I was just going to mention do it. a thousand years before Agrippa and uh, Paracelsus. You have a thousand years before that is is Empedocles, who really uh, is the forerunner in bringing those those four elements into a Grecian philosophy. You want to talk a little bit about that before I continue yeah. on with Agrippa? Yeah, run, I run with that history if you got anything else to add. Well, I was just going to say so. So uh, in in you know uh, four I don't know four hundred BC or whatever it is. Uh, um. Empedocles develops, um, uh, well, he not develops, but he proposes that there are four elements that represent the building blocks of all matter, um, which, you know, they, in this thread matter being, you know, the, the things you can hold real elements, you know, uh, being the salt. Um, so later on, this gets refined as things do. Um, and fire is actually dropped off of the four elements and what you're left with, you know, in, mm. in, in, in the way I'm looking at this is what becomes the tree of Prima, which is, you know, it's a, uh, a complete refinement of the system. Um, and actually a lot of times I think when refinement happens, it's, it's confused more. And well, it's like seven minute abs. And if you're like, if you do six minute abs, you're fine. It's, it's one better. So it's yeah. And well, so and, and fire becomes the, the manifestation. Yeah. Right? It becomes, the culmination, becomes yeah. an end result as, almost. as yeah. opposed to it's the action, you know, a, a base component, right? Yeah. Like, like the aether. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so all I would say is that, you know, for anybody out there who kind of will struggle with a lot of the ideas of what these elements all represent, um, I've always thought of them um, as it was really bizarre when I was when I was young. I you know we went I went to a Lutheran academy when I was in grade school, and they were really all about reading and stuff. And I would read these books on philosophy and things. And uh, Pastor Fisher was he was a guy who was really cool. He said, Robert, you can kind of think of these three elements as they were uh, after, uh, you know, after being refined from Empedocles' work. Um, he talked about salt, sulfur, or uh, well, in the order, right? Salt, mercury, sulfur as being salt is the material, so the personified thing. Um, and then you, mercury really represented. Um, everything you weren't, but was available to you. And sulfur represented 
your potential to use those elements in order to sort of balance yourself out to become better. I like that. That's uh, that's a good setup because think you'll see a lot of common patterns. Yeah. And then and, and when I said, well, so what happens to fire though, dude? And he goes, well, think about fire as the action. And that's when he tied it back to it's the catalyzer. Yeah. 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 He, he tied it back to uh, the burning bush. When, when God says, I am that I am. And you kind of look at it in the, the context of the way that Hebrews written, as I understand it, it's something like, uh, you know, I am that which continues to create or something like that. It's really active sort of verb. And so this one becomes this city of fire, like kind of comes out of the four elements because it becomes the action. Yeah. The, the, yeah. What was the word you used, Jason? The catalyzer. Yeah. 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 The, and, uh, the other three pieces remain inert yep. until acted upon by fire. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's all I got for It's for like the portion. three of us are inert <laughs> until Joe shows up. So, yeah, that's right. And then we yeah. start on fire. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, so cycling back to, to Agrippa, you know, we have the four elements being the primary, you know, the, the foundation of all corporal, corporeal things for fire, earth, air, and water. Now it's important to note that like none of these elements are pure. Um, they're all mixed together in varying degrees. And so each element actually has two qualities. It has one, you know, an occult virtue that is its own fire being hot. Right. Um, but it, each element has a second virtue that is halfway between the the element and another element and so you know when we talk about alchemy think about okay everything on earth has its own particular set of occult virtues or properties that stem from the properties um, imbued into the four elements that are governed by a certain celestial body that originated from God. And alchemy was the idea that by isolating certain occult virtues and mixing those virtues together, you can obtain something perfect or pure because the idea is that as you know you know as ideas and virtues filter down you know from god to the celestial bodies down to the natural bodies they they essentially get diluted and polluted uh in the way down and so being able to isolate um those particular virtues um and then recombine them is is a way to achieve you know a very powerful outcome and or effect and so um let's see so So, not unlike how we want to go from a rough ashler to a perfect ashler right we're trying to remove the impurities we're trying to take away but vices and this has always been something that has interested me is um 
probably a side gripe here, but it is interesting to note that we get so many brothers well-meaning in terms of wanting the initiatic experience to be jarring and different and interesting. And let's face it, I mean, it's a little spooky, right? And so when you when you do this a lot of times these ideas of alchemical philosophy are introduced in things like you know chambers of reflection or preparation rooms and i always had this kind of weird feeling about that because I, in my mind i'm thinking oh here we are we're teaching one version of a sort of chipping away at the ashlar until you find the perfect man within or something similar to it and then we're also introducing this idea of personal alchemy you know the idea of of representing these different um elements inside the chamber and and so now when the when the brother goes through the degrees you know there's not really much there that's talking about things like um you know the boiling down to get to the prima materia or whatever the case is and so i don't always agree with the mixing of the two i think uh but but it can be used effectively because uh, it's it's like uh, many different stories that are getting you to the same sort of outcome. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll leave so, you with that. And, and a lot of alchemy is purification, right? And, and or or in its essence, it's purification and magnification. So. You know, much of the alchemical process, starting with fire, right, the calcination stage, which you, you know, becomes, again, the catalyzer for the entire process. You know, if you go step through kind of those those seven and or nine stages of, of alchemy, depending on, you know, what philosopher you're reading, um, it's not just, you know, pulling the impurities out. But there are several stages where you're adding other things in right. to stabilize and magnify the effect. So I, I do agree with you uh, on that point, Robert. Yeah. So when you talk about adding things in, right, like this, that's where I'm looking at uh, the world around you as uh, the mercury. Yeah. Um, like kind of what's left to work with, the volatility, if you will. Um of, of the things that are available to you that you can add to yourself to then even yourself out. You know, when I first looked at this, um, it had been a long time since I really dove into it. I had to pull out, I have this green binder that like I keep all of my philosophy notes in from like classes I was in wow. or, you know, when I was, when I was younger and I'm looking through these notes and I, I found something that I, that I, I uh, had in there and it said something like, you know, as I understood this concept of the, the principle of three, um, I was like, well, it's really weird, you know, cause like mathematically you're looking at like, what, what is the idea to, to sit here and to go, uh, I need to have an equilibrium of all three of these things. No, uh, because that's completely, uh, sort of like, I think the way I was thinking about it when I was a kid, and maybe some of our viewers might have this idea too, like, oh, these might, you know, represent individual elements that I need to kind of bring into equilibrium. When in fact, it's really more of describing uh, a process and the tools you use in the process rather than saying like, hey, you need 33% salt, 33 right. mercury and 33 you know, sulfur or something, you know. Um, or... So and, yeah. and or maybe it's an application of various parts of the like theological virtues 
mm-hmm. like temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. Absolutely. Uh-huh. You know, nah. brotherly <laughs> love you know, and yeah. truth, charity, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, I, I know. No, I'm, I, which I, I'm these. glad you, you picked up on that because, you know, when you said virtues, I had my, my ears pick up, right? <laughs> so um, virtues as perfection states yes. and then a- applying that to alchemy as well. So that's cool. Good yeah. call. Good catch. Keep going. <laughs> and so what, what we have here is, um, you know, essentially in Agrippa's work, there's this idea of the world spirit. And so the world spirit is the mercury of the tria prima. It is the spiritual occult virtue conveyance mechanism. It is how the virtues flow down and, and bind to, you know, different things. The world spirit is what binds the soul to the body, essentially. And all of your soul's virtues then extend out to the various members or parts of, of your body. And so, you know, that, that is kind of similar to how the world spirit extends virtues to, to everything. The issue is the world spirit doesn't infuse, doesn't infuse into everything equally. And so by separating the spirit from the elements or using those things that are most abundant um, with the spirit and breaking that binding between spirit and matter, the spirit that has the occult virtues can then act more powerfully and more perfectly and generate more of the matter to which it was bound. And that's really important because that was the premise for alchemists trying to turn lead into gold because what they would do is they would take a small piece of gold and they would subject it to the alchemical process to break the bond between the virtues of the metal and the spirit and then that that spirit tincture would then be applied to lead because lead was considered to be inferior to gold. Right. And in kind of the laws of occult virtues, the inferior virtues will always be subordinate to the superior virtues. And so by taking the spirit of the virtue of gold and putting it into lead, they were trying to accept, essentially put into motion a process that would then um, catalyze more of the gold that would take over as the dominant, you know, occult virtue. And that's, that's where we got the idea of trying to turn lead into gold because gold was a superior virtue. And it was thought that um, by isolating the spirit, you could generate more, of the the thing it was tied to nice and so this alchemy or alchem so that's so yes so that's the Mm -hmm. that's the kind of alchemical world in which paracelsus was operating in the early 1500s so you know agrippa does you know, go on a bunch of rabbit holes about, you know, using 
occult virtues and leveraging occult virtues to cure diseases. The, the idea that like occult virtues attract and opposite occult virtues repel. And so if you have a sickness or an illness that has a certain set of occult virtues, if you match that up with its opposite, you got too much fire in you. So we need to will flee water you down. So throw right. a bucket of water on Joe and that'll get his spiciness down. I, I don't know why this tends to remind me of the, the meme that's like, like a dead guy on a table. And then the doctors are holding the crystals and he's like, we just need to align his chakras. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously i mean when we too many at, ghosts when we're looking at these uh these virtues um that i mean the rabbit holes that you're talking about jason i mean they are innumerable and what i think actually works against the philosophy and where a lot of guys like just get lost, you know what i mean like yeah so it just goes down all these crazy avenues and like at the foundational level, I think for most folks, um, this is all like amazing and interesting. And we, we love this stuff. We eat it up. And I think probably everybody watching live does too. And yet I have to like always remember to think, um, just don't, don't get carried away. <laughs> Cause I mean, you will go down this rabbit hole yeah. of, of like, uh, like un unknowable things. You know what I mean? Um, it's uh, like it's like it, when you work on. You can go. There's a website up right now that you can go to that has like a bunch of unsolved mathematical problems. And if you solve them, then like they give you some money. Like it's like contemplating one of those. Uh, you just kind of keep diving deeper, and it's in. And for me, I keep looking at it like it's Agrippa's way of uh and paracelsus even it's their way of continuing to dissect and and look what's underneath each thing as its own umbrella mm -hmm. and uh, and it's it's at its core a set of hypotheses right i like that, that. Have, have yet to be disproven or had yet at that time to be at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So have we disproven it? I don't, I don't think or it depends if you take it literally or symbolically. Right. right. And so it's like, I, I kind of wonder about uh, when we, so uh, those of you who don't know Ben Williams, Ben Williams has the Rocky mountain Mason podcast. Great, great podcast. Um, in some of his earlier episodes, he went through and he read all of the occult books of Agrippa on the podcast. Um, and he's got a nice voice too. You can listen to it all day. So check it out. But you know, they're dense. It, it, <laughs> they are like, it is a struggle to get through those books. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a, a latch. It's, it's like a, a Gen Z kid trying to watch a Dennis Miller, um, the, den the opening for Dennis Miller. Please like, tell me you've, you've heard about the Gen Z Bible. Uh, no, I've not. Bruh. Bruh. Oh, hey, are you making a joke right now? No, Bruh. it's it's a real thing. It's hilarious. Oh, damn. But like, you need to hand him a thesaurus. And just like with, with Agrippa's work, it's not something you're just going to be like, oh, I'm going to sit down and read this and like absorb it. You're going to be like, I don't know what that means. And then 
you have to like go get the contextual sort of references for parts of it. I mean, it's no small undertaking that you're doing, Jason. So much appreciated. <laughs> well, and can I can I just give a quick shout out to Ed Rivera bringing in quantum entanglement? Because uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, oh, well, I, I could go down so many rabbit holes on quantum mechanics. Yeah, and how like so much of what we know about quantum physics and quantum mechanics aligns with, you know, perhaps not the execution yeah. of, you know, medieval occult philosophers, but the framework of yeah. occult philosophy. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, that's my jam, right? When I do symbolic research is to see where these patterns show up and more specifically I am personally fascinated when you have these patterns that show up from the pre-common scientific era that you can now explain these concepts that they had no rationale about. Um, and so, for example, like, why were the platonic solids so cool? But now we have, like, our bacteria and virus structures are form lattices in the shape of platonic solids right we they could they could not measure that but they knew that there that was a building block of life right stuff like that yeah there's there's jason's platonic solids right there <laughs> yeah right uh how, how is the flower of life uh not unlike the cellular structure uh of a, you know a dividing embryo right so it's just fascinating stuff but i digress that's a whole other episode <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's what I get. I, I enjoy merging the the modern scientific with the the symbolism and the themes that these uh, these prede our predecessors have been trying to uh, form these abstract concepts into words and writing books and books to explain these really weird, heady, abstract things uh, that um, that are now becoming more and more proven by modern science. Well, I think one of the this is the last thing I'll say, and then we'll get back to, to Paracelsus. But I, I think it's, it's always so interesting when you look at the history of religion and magic uh, to see how a lot of magic, you know, is just us catching up to science. Now, that doesn't at all diminish the power of that magic. But I... I tend to to look at, you know, magical processes and miracles as, you know, scientific processes we just haven't discovered yet, which doesn't make them any less spiritual. What, what do they say that uh, any modern um, scientific application can, is indistinguishable for magic? Yeah. So that's the reverse of what you just said. I love to it. the untrained mind. And you know, th there was something else that was, was just blasting through in the comments. A lot of people were talking about, and it's, it's really this idea that, you know, all of this, uh, you know, any kind of science that we have really is just, you know, it's, it's our way of describing the observable reality of, of the way things work. Um, and what's wild to me is that, we look at those things today that we have proven and we know how we did that. Hey, we invented machines to observe things a certain way to prove how they work. Cool. 
That's now we understand how that happens. So we could solve these problems. And yet even better when we <laughs> end up proving something else accidentally. Yeah. Yeah. That Double slit experiment. Right. Yeah, exactly. But even so, like going back to like these guys, um, you know, who come up with these concepts and who have been dissecting these things for a thousand years, you look at these guys and you go, Oh, these guys didn't have these intricate measuring machines. Like right. these guys had one thing, their brain. <laughs> like These guys were just sitting down going, could it just be, you know, and it's just, it just blows my mind how close they get. Hey, I'm glad you showed Adam, Adam's uh, statement there about uh, quantum mechanics is helping to prove some of the hermetic principles because Special shout out to Brother Adam for actually being the inspiration for this three-part series. So, yes. So kudos for inspiring us to to dive deeper. So thank you, brother. Yeah. All right. So man, we could oh, we could nerd out on this for hours. hours we only had a podcast where we could just talk about things I know, hours right? at a time. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, next week on our <laughs> You know, riveting show on green beans and the Masonic experience. <laughs> oh, and Joe's not here. That's Joe's penance for not being here this week. That is true. <laughs> so, so you know, moving forward, uh, getting back to Paracelsus, John. What uh, what was Paracelsus all about? And uh, you know, how did he come up with with the idea of the Tria Prima? Or how did he refine that idea? You are muted. I muted myself. That's great. Um, yeah, to pick up where you left off, it, it was that I had some salt to the green beans. Um, that again, we had these other frameworks of classical elements. We had these... these um, these concepts of using them as medicine uh, to build this tree of Prima. And what I, what I find fascinating is how it starts to evolve from a, an operative practice to a speculative practice over time. Right. Um, Paracelsus actually was a fascinating dude. I'm, that's, I'm going to go on a brief tangent on him as well. Um, We're not getting the salt tonight. I'm just saying. Tell you what, I'm going to take us back. Okay, so salt. No, 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 no. We'll do salt next week. It's fine. No, no, no. I want to get. I want to get to it. Let's I, do it. Come on. No, 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 no. I guess I got some good stuff with salt. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You can. You can wait till next week. No, no, no. All right. Let me let me set the stage here. So another reason why this is fascinating is this this trinity that we have here. There's a presentation that I did for Esotericon many, many years ago, which I think I'm going to revive this year. Um, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about this is the one I'm going to do for um, uh, the, the Kansas Masonicon, which syncretic is tablet? the syncretic tablet, right? Yes. Where you actually find themes and patterns across uh, numerical groupings of symbols. So specifically, when you hear references to salt, sulfur, and mercury, you actually see them represent different stages or different characteristics throughout a variety of 
of sciences. So different occult virtues, different occult virtues, right? Um, so what I what I've done is is try to pull together things like from uh, like Eliophis Levy or um, other more modern kind of magical kind of guys and even include some things like Pike who stole a lot from, from Levy anyway, and try to put that, a that compiler, just like a, a compiler, <laughs> not, not a, uh, not a plagiarist. Right? He won't be, won't be kicked out of Harvard, but he definitely um, lifted heavily uh, to put these things together. But what I want you to do is I'm setting the stage here. When, when we cover these, these three elements or maybe four, if you talk about kind of the, the culmination of them, I want you to think about where they fit uh, from a, a subjective standpoint, where, where they, where they fit kind of in this hierarchy. And we'll, we'll start with, with salt and we'll go back and we'll start building on top of these as we get into the, to the other future shows. So let me, let me dive in with kind of the most obvious one. We talked about the four classical elements and we talked about the Tria Prima. So how do you rectify that? How do you go from four to three, right? Um, one could argue that really wasn't the intent. He was not trying to replace, Paracelsus was not trying to replace the four, four classical elements. Um, he just noticed these patterns. However, comma, over time, people have started to map them together. And so, yes, um, I think uh, as B. Primo said here, morals and dogma. Um, it's another thing that Albert Pike compiled, uh, actually has a really good section, uh, specifically on, uh, the 28th degree, which actually goes into a lot of detail here, uh, much more than we're going to get to. And so when we talk about salt, right, we, from the classical elements perspective, salt would be, uh, the salt of the earth, as it were, right? Salt is an earthly element. It is common. It is what gives, you know, our, our base grounding. It gives also our, our, our flavor, right? You see a lot of biblical references to, you know, is something having, having salt is a good thing, right? So, and, and John, to, um, you know, the sources that I come across paired salt with earth and water interesting and so, so what do you get if you combine earth and water you get clay oh i like it yeah right so the building blocks that's, of life that's an aside i won't steal your thunder the adam uh, awesome yes very very cool which is fascinating because um not for lot's wife <laughs> she turned to a pillar of salt where if, um, which again, Mercury actually, um, in some of, uh, Eliophis Levy's, uh, work actually says, uh, Mercury stands for air and water, but we'll cover that in the, the Mercury episode. Um, also fast forward. So we have salt as this grounding element of earth. When you look at how alchemy started to evolve and why it was kept secret, right? anyone who's dabbled in alchemy and has actually tried to read texts. I mean, it's, it's actually no secret that uh, the majority of Sir Isaac Newton's writings, the majority over 50% were on alchemy alone. 
So uh, we know him for the, you know, the Apple and Gravity, but over half of his writings uh, were on alchemy. <clears throat> and the alchemists at that time, knowing that God inspired all things and was, were trying to explain the universe, often wrote their processes in a coded language. Mm. So that way it was not discovered uh, or at least not replicated by someone who was not worthy or didn't have the time and dedication to decipher these things. Um, however, over time, right, we've, we've been able to read lots of alchemical texts. We have this internet thing. We can, we can crawl lots of these things all at once and we see patterns that pop up. So one thing that, that does come up is whenever you see a winged dragon in alchemical text, that's, that's referring to salt. Uh, the, the actual material of salt as well. So a winged dragon. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, then we have this thing called the Tetramorph. The Tetramorph um, is, is kind of a, a biblical reference to a, a four-headed figure. Um, or you also might see it on your tarot card of, I believe, the world, where you have a, a bull, a lion, a man and an eagle. And according to, to uh, Levy, you actually have the salt is a, an earth creature. So that would be the bull. Right? And you have out of the two bull and lion, um, you have this, this association with the bull, right? Again, it's a very, uh, the bull being a, a farm animal, right? Working the field, working the earth. So that makes sense to actually have that association with salt as well. Ancient astronauts theories would disagree. Say more. I'm curious. Oh, I was just making a joke. You know, like, so you always hear right. about the, the quote from Ezekiel's wheels. And right. it's obviously it's a tetramorph and it's probably actually just relating to, you know, cosmology. Right. But instead it's. Or cosmogony. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a. An alien with four faces. Nice. I love it. And one of those faces being salt. Yeah. But getting back to the the Splendor Solace, I think this is plate five. Um I believe this card actually um in the tarot represents the tower, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um but you can uh, you can see the uh, I see the three heads. No, it's actually temperance. This is this is the alchemy of temperance. Here is the the winged dragon representing salt. Nice. Yeah. As the base, as the earth. Yes. That's super cool. Yeah. Awesome. Let's see um, another another earthly correspondence here is in the um, predispositions of your personality. Salt is actually corresponding to wisdom as well. And again, it's you need to have wisdom before you build on top of that. Well, what about how come people say that I'm always being salty? Are, are they saying I'm full of wisdom? I think they're yes. That's that's what they are saying to you, oh. RJ. Every time they say that that you are you're very salty. You're like RJ, salty dude. 
Mm-hmm. All right. I get it. Nice. I get it. That's awesome. Uh, let's see. What else? We have hermetic magic, is which is something I do not know as much about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different animals associated with hermetic magic. However, coincidentally, salt is uh, corresponding to the bull as well in hermetic magic. So even and I love those patterns when they jump out and you're like, oh, it means the bull here and and the bull in this system as well. Again, kind of doubling down on it's more than a coincidence. There's some sort of um, pattern that, that jumps out from there. <laughs> nice. I think that was for you, RJ. Um, I like sweet hots. So now, one thing that's really fascinating is you can with armed with some knowledge, you can actually take some more deeper leaps beyond just what um, other ancients have written. So again, another thing that I really liked about doing research with uh, Jamie Paul Lamb's book is Jamie Paul Lamb. Another thing that he is really passionate about is uh, like harmonies and harmonics and how music ties in with the occult and how if um, he actually tries to apply some of these uh, concepts of salt, sulfur, mercury, the trio prima to, to music as well, where he says like, what is the grounding part of music, but rhythm. So the drummers would really appreciate that. (laughs) Nice. Right. So you can't have the other aspects of, of music without having rhythm, which makes a lot of sense. And so perhaps then the melody is the mercury and the tempo is the sulfur. You have to wait till next week to find out. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> All right. What I, keep your secrets. Keep your secrets. <laughs> Lead me on for another week, John. But now the fun now the fun part begins. Let's Welcome talk. Welcome back about- to alchemical <laughs> edging. <laughs> let's uh let's now talk about Freemasonry. Like what is the connection to the Tree of Prima and Freemasonry, right? This is a Masonic podcast. Why are we going down this this like really weird esoteric rabbit hole? Um one thing that JPL does a good job of too is explaining the historical aspects of how these things came into a ritual, not unlike Robert Davis's a Mason's words, but, but more of the symbolic history, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Right. Um, so when we have the fellow craft degree, uh, the wages of a fellow craft are corn, wine, and oil. You'll see lots of people selling uh, little trinkets. I think I got some, uh, somewhere back there on my shelf. I think actually it's in right there, a little, little vials of corn, wine, and oil um, sitting there. And um, this is a, also a really fascinating historical fact. So I'm going to go on a little tangent here. In fact, salt relates to the corn. And you could say, okay, maybe there's an earthy connection there or whatever. But think about it. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Where was corn or maize only found? Here. Here in America. Yeah. But wait a minute. Freemasonry predates the colonization of America. 
and unless unless ancient aliens. The Templars got ah, uh, that's true, and then took the corn with them back to Scotland, yeah. where they built Roslyn Chapel. True, and then came down via Nova Scotia. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, in fact, if you look at the um, the original context of of to salt something was actually to ground it or to uh, to corn it. So, uh, it was. It was kind of a play on words, but it really was. Uh, there's been some good research to show that really the original um, wages of Felicraft may have been more closely related to um, salt, wine, and oil. So, fun little fun fact there, <clears throat> especially because it you know has the started as the European construct where we didn't have um, corn, but but corn at that time was meant anything that was kind of a grain, anything that was um cornmeal just something that you could have a, as a base base aspect of your food so that's kind of a, a neat neat uh, correspondence there so salt is is actually corn in the um the corn wine and oil aspect so you have, you have to think next week for wine and oil what are the other two yes so thank you adam for bringing it up <laughs> corn because no, no, he's 100% correct in this aspect because corned beef it's is actually beef. a salted beef. <clears throat> and so to corn something was mean to literally add spices to it. Just to salt it until it was preservable and kept you from dying because it was a non-fatal way of ensuring that you would survive through the preservation of meats. And yeah, so was the when... When people make the comment that you're salty, Robert, they just mean you're very well preserved. These gray oh. hairs would uh, definitely disagree. <laughs> awesome. And then, uh, and then, as we alluded to earlier, if you dust off your your handy dandy copy of uh, Morals and Dogma, uh, you just always have that at the ready. Um, little light reading good paperweight <laughs> it, it holds the paper really well it does not <laughs> blow away at all or stop <laughs> I've, I've tested in hurricane category five winds didn't move uh again this is where pike lifts heavily from transcendental magic by elephas uh, levy and puts a lot of it's it's French. It's got accents. Um, has a lot of the concepts of what we're talking about tonight in the context of the twenty eighth degree, or uh, also known as the Knight of the Sun or Prince Adept. Oh. So, if for all our Scottish Rite brothers, uh, both southern, southern and northern, surprisingly, but you know it's changed over time. So, you know, they, they couldn't leave a good thing. Um, so this is what you're supposed to know as a Scottish Rite Mason about all of the uh, chemical processes, how the Tria Prima um, turn into uh, these these medicinal elixirs. So, bet you didn't know that, but uh, it's in there. So brush off your morals and dogma and check out the 28th degree, and you'll see a lot of what we're talking about. We should probably wrap up. This is a perfect time <laughs> to wrap up. <laughs> 
because, uh, you know, Joe just couldn't bring a spicy self here. His well-preserved self. <laughs> Everybody go online and tell Joe that he missed out on the best episode of TMR so far. I don't know. I hear last week was fire. Sorry, I missed it. Was fire. It was it was good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll put a pin in that. We'll pick up right from there next week. Let's head over to RJ to start telling us about how salty he is. RJ, I am so salty. Um, first of all, how salty are you? <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> oh man. Um, my kids call me Kippered Beefsteak. Um, so who was it in the chat? B Primo. I think he said he was, he wanted to get a copy of Joseph Fort Newton's, uh, the builders and read it pretty soon. Definitely do that, man. Um, there are deals to be had on that book, like everywhere. Uh, just, just get it. It's really great. Um, I really loved this episode because, uh, it, it starts to unpack a lot of the things that as Masons, uh, we see tangentially uh, referenced in, you know, a lot of the philosophical cited uh, presentations and talks that we do. And while they might not be directly related, uh, that tangential relationship that they do have is uh, directly uh, aligned with masonry through things like the study of the liberal arts and sciences through things like tangential orders uh, where you would have to be a mason to become a member of them i mean the first uh, organized rosicrucian body was a masonic one uh, spun off from that the hermetic order of the golden dawn uh, and so on and so forth so there's a lot to be uh, explored um, and i think taking the time to do that is uh very important. I saw a lot of people talking about um, science and math and quantum physics and entanglement and things. I would just say that keep pulling those strings. No pun intended. Uh, that's huh. that whole thing's my jam. Um, I do like mathematics and, and physics is, is my hobby on the side. Um, a few books I just wanted to recommend. Um, I pulled five. You probably saw me looking over the side at one of my bookshelves. Um, when you were talking about the four virtues, this is a really great text. Uh, you can get it for a couple bucks. Aquinas is the cardinal virtues. Yes. Um, Richard Gillings, mathematics in the time of the pharaohs is pretty tight. Uh, don't look at this as being completely uh, some sort of magical philosophical texts. These are um, texts that explain the way numbers were used in terms of the context of the day. So while they might seem magical, understanding the context and the history takes the magical away in some respects. Um, the theology of arithmetic is a solid. Um, I mentioned in the text morphic resonance, the nature of formative causation. This is really great. Um, and this was just really damn fun to read. Uh, you guys might like it. It's called Mythmatics. Um, so pretty cool stuff. Um, always keep learning. Um, and I want to thank Jason for his extensive research this evening and John, uh, unpacking some of those, uh, salt pieces at the end for sure. Uh, I wanted to make sure we got to some of it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Jason was fine to just punt those the next week, but I wasn't <laughs> going to let him. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the references, RJ. Good, good call. Jason. Yeah, that's, 
Awesome. Yeah. If you want to read more on the occult philosophy of mathematics, turn to Agrippa's second book of occult philosophy on the celestial world. And there is a huge treatise on um, uh, numerology and uh, gematria and, um, you know, how, how numerology factors into Kabbalah. Um, so, I, again, dense. It probably might have you know, a lot of easier books to read on that. Um, uh, but for me, you know, this, the blending of history, philosophy, and science is um, always a super engaging and enlightening exercise to, to go through the, the idea that, okay, in a lot of cases, we can now, you know, scientifically prove certain pieces of, you know, philosophy that, you know, we were thinking about upwards of thousands of years ago. And, um, you know, the, the idea being that a lot of philosophy is just hypothesizing and, Sometimes it takes hundreds or thousands of years to be able to actually, you know, test a given hypothesis. And so this, uh, yeah, this, this episode for me has it all. It's got the, the mystical, the magical, the historical, the scientific, um, all kind of rolled up into one. And when you look at the world through a lens that, that blends those things, um, it's a cool place to be. Amen to that. Yeah. Awesome. Didn't you mean, don't you mean smib to that? So that's a casual smib right there. Smibbity bibbity. Oh, you guys want to let the cat out of the bag, right? At the next Esotericon, we're all getting uh, the, we're getting one tattoo each. SMIB right here. Everybody, we're going to take our shirts off. It's going to be pretty amazing. Oh, sorry, sorry you're, you're breaking up, RJ. <laughs> Your connections. I would connections. never. I, I have not, did not, nor will I enter into such a contract. That's fine. Blink twice if you're in distress, Jason. Okay. I want to order temporary tattoos. All right. Uh, so here's what I like about this. So what? You have all this context of people trying to pull these abstract ideas into tangible words and are, we're only limited by the, the language that we have and how we express them and how we hear them. So what do we do when we have these concepts of connections between earth and bulls and wisdom and rhythm? How do we, what are we supposed to do with all that? And I, what I want you to do is just find that common theme. And as you look, go into the next week, think about like, what is your grounding element? What is that thing that is uh, your foundation for either who you are today or what you want to project to become? Like, so that's what I find cool about these is that if we look through the lens of this element of salt and all of the connotations across a, a myriad of different categories, then apply that, right? Start applying that to your, your daily life. How am I, you know, getting that foundational knowledge I need to 
work hard so I can then um, maybe get a promotion someday? Or what is this? What is the uh, the thing that I need to be grounded more of? Maybe I mean maybe I'm too artistic and I'm I'm losing track of time and I need to to step back. I need to start applying that that symbolic nature of salt to just like say, wait a minute, let me come back down to earth, literally and figuratively, and say like. What is it that I need to do to hit the old reset button and and make sure I have a good a good foundation going forward? So think about that. Think about how that applies. So we next week can come back and start talking about the next element. So with that, fantastic episode. Thank you for the history, Jason. And what else? Um, thank you very much for watching. And keep searching for more light. Have a good night. Wow. Wow.